And uh, we are finishing up this series that we started just a couple of weeks ago, a little three-part series uh, called I Want to Know What Love Is. And uh, I don't know about you guys, again, it's just been one, when I hear that song, all uh, that song from Foreigner has just been playing in my head over and over again. And then just listening to music over the last few weeks that we've been in this series, you, you realize how many songs are about love and not just necessarily saying I love you but like what is love and trying to figure out how to love somebody and all these kind of things and this is what we've been looking at from a biblical perspective of what is love what is it and so today we're going to finish this series and just remind you we've been looking at kind of three key parts the first one was how to love the Lord uh, the command that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy that said love the Lord with all your heart soul mind and strength and we talked about how that plays out in our life first so that then we can, what we looked at last week, love our neighbors, love others. And we talked about what neighborly love was, that it's based on opportunity and vicinity and those that are around us. It's not just those that are easiest to love. Sometimes it's those that are difficult to love, but yet it's those that God puts in our vicinity and in our proximity that we get to love and how we express neighborly love through compassion and mercy. And then today we're moving to the third one, which is a the by far the most difficult, which is Jesus's command to love your enemies. And so before we even jump into that, I want to remind us, uh, because this is one, as we talk about loving our enemies, that can feel like, all right, I, I got to figure this one out, because if I don't, then if that's what Jesus told me to do, then man, I'm in trouble, because I'm not good at loving my enemies. And we, I want to remind us that this is first and foremost, these commands to love are not something that are natural in us at all. Look, even loving God, loving neighbors, and certainly loving our enemies are not some natural ability that we're just born with. It comes through the transforming work of experiencing the love of our creator first. And once we've experienced that, then we have the opportunity to express that out to other people. So it's not just that I've got to wake up in the morning and decide to love my enemy today. It's the fact that this is birthed out of a change that has happened to me. But the second thing we want to remind ourselves is that these are also not just a checklist to get me into heaven at the end of my life. So that if I can love God rightly, love others rightly, and love my enemies and do nice things for our enemies, then eventually when I die and God's checking out what I did, he's going to say, you're in or out based on how you did these three things. This is not a way of salvation. Instead, it is an expression of our salvation, right? It is as we are experiencing this love of God and it's changing us, it's showing up as fruit in our life as we have now this transformative ability to love God, love others, and love our enemies. And so let's jump into this idea of loving your enemies, which is very difficult. Now, I'll give you the context of where this teaching is going to come from. Jesus is in the middle of one of the most famous sermons he ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount. And during this entire sermon, he has been basically turning religious tradition upside down. Just to give you ideas, he, he redefined what it meant to be blessed when he opened up with the Beatitudes. He, he talked about blessed is not accumulating things, but it's blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. He was turning on its head what it meant to live a blessed life. He was redefining what it means to live as difference makers in the world. He was saying, be salt and light. He was like, don't just try to get by, but make a difference where you're at. He redefines our understanding even of what sin is, 
that it's much more of just action. Don't do this, this, and this. He actually said it's about your heart. It's like, don't just do these things. Instead, don't lust. Don't have anger. Don't have greed. Don't allow those things to internalize so that they show up on the outside. He's redefining all of this. In one sermon, Jesus has set centuries of old teachings about God straight. These teachings that had become corrupted by man's desire to use the law to benefit themselves. Just to give you one example of what was going on at the time, and and it's happened in our history again. So in the teaching, Jesus says, if, if you're angry with somebody, he says, leave your offering at the temple, go and make right with that person, and then come back and give your offering. And this was a direct opposition to what the teaching was during that day, which was this. If you come with sin or you come with anger towards someone, give an extra gift so that then God may not be angry with you and judge you. So, so Jesus' teaching here is like, no, it's not just practical. It is transformational, right? He is, he's pushing back on corrupt religious practices and saying, hey, don't, don't just use religion for your own gain, but instead let it transform who you are. So imagine you're sitting in this crowd. Your religious understanding has literally been turned on its head. You spent your whole life trying to keep yourself from doing certain things, and instead Jesus is saying, stop worrying about what you're doing and stop wor- and start worrying about who you are becoming. Deal with your attitude, and the actions will follow. And then in the midst of all this, Jesus drops the biggest bomb on them all. And it's found in Matthew 4, Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. And he drops and he says, here's something new to think about. And he says this, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And people are probably saying, let's shake your head. Like, that's what a good, you know, follower of God ought to do. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I can imagine there was maybe a literal gasp in the audience at this teaching. We have heard this. If you've been around church, you've certainly heard this taught before. You've heard this spoken before. Maybe you've read it and studied it before. But for this group of people sitting in that moment, this was just a slap in the face. Because think about who these people are. As foreign as I thought it was for us today, it's even more revolutionary for the Jewish people of that day because their land was being occupied by a Roman Empire at the time. They were they were enslaved. They were occupied people. They were, what they were living was not just what they wanted to live. They were prisoners in their own country, and their leaders were cruel and unjust. The best maybe we can describe it today is it's what's happening in Ukraine and Russia currently, right? It's Russia's occupying Ukraine. And in the midst of that, Jesus says to love your enemy. Their enemy was in front of them every day. This was not something they had to wait and experience. They were going to experience it on the way home from this teaching. And their hope was for a Messiah that many of them thought Jesus may be. And what they were hoping that that Messiah would do is come and liberate them from their enemies, defeat their enemies, not tell them to love their enemies. This was revolutionary. Which brings us to the next question, which Jesus is going to answer. Why? Why do this? Why should we do this? And in verse 45, Jesus begins to answer, and he says, Do this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
Jesus immediately deals with what they're thinking. But these people don't deserve love, right? They deserve justice. Why should I love someone who is my enemy, my captor, my source of pain and anguish, my tormentor? Because this is what it means to be sons of our Father's Father in heaven. This type of love is the character of God, and it is the character we inherit when we become his followers and his children. And Jesus also reminds us in this passage that reminds them and us that we receive things every day that we don't deserve, right? Things that we did nothing to earn. Becoming a son of the Father is not about embracing his blessings, but it's also about being willing to pass on those same type of blessings to those that don't deserve them either. The two examples he uses, right, is the rain and the sun. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the good and the evil. Just think about for a minute. What if the sunrise every day was dependent upon your righteousness? What if rain coming was dependent upon whether you sinned or not that day? Like, can you imagine the pressure that would be put on you? But yet, this is what Jesus is reminding us here. We often want nothing good to come into people's life if they've done any evil in their life at all as well. But we forget how often we do evil, and yet good still comes into our life every day. Not because of anything we've deserved or earned, but because of the complete grace and mercy that the character of God is demonstrated to us. And if you are to be a child of this Father who is in heaven, then it is starting to reflect that character as well. That's the why. That's the why we do this, to be a reflection of the character of God and his grace and mercy that we have been willingly recipients of as well. So then, you know, Jesus is kind of figuring this out, and the next question that would maybe come to their mind is not just why, but then, okay, if I do this, what do I get out of this? If I actually love my enemies, what do I get out of this? And in verse 46, Jesus starts to answer, answer this. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? For therefore, you must, you therefore must be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. Now, verse 48, we're going to come to in a minute because that's a terrifying verse when you think about it. But he, he uses these first couple passages in this last part of the teaching. Jesus uses two of the most hated figures in the Jewish culture at those times to set forward an example. He's like, do not even the, the Gentiles, the tax, or the tax collectors. He uses tax collectors. These are Jewish people under captivity working for Rome to put the laws of the Rome onto the Jewish people. These are hated people. And says, even the tax collectors can show compassion on those that they love. Or the Gentiles. And when he's saying Gentiles, even the, the Romans, right? Your own captors will welcome their brother. They can do this. They can love their neighbors and love their brothers. But you who are children of, the, of God, who brings blessings down to all people, should be living by a different standard than what you're expecting others to live by. You have experienced the blessings of God to the most you should be the ones to also then demonstrate his blessings to other in a grander st scale than anyone else. And the payoff is what then? If there's a why should we do this, the payoff is found in verse 48 when he says to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. 
Now I want you to, that, that verse can often be taken out of context and, and used for guilt and shame, like you're not living up to this standard. But, but remember the context we're in of all this teaching? Jesus has been changing. He's like, it's not just about stealing, killing, killing or adultery. It's about lust and greed. It's about internal. So Jesus is saying that the payoff for you is this, is that if you live this way, you will experience the same perfect pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope that your Father in heaven has demonstrated and wants for you. It is a way to live in perfect peace. It is a way to live with a hope that we can't explain, with a peace that passes understanding. If you want these kind of perfect things in your life, then you live in the way that God has demonstrated for us to live. It is this ancient concept that we have been blessed to then be a blessing to other people. You have been given gifts to be a gift to others. This is the culmination of this part of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, and it takes us back to the very beginning of the foundations of the nations of Israel when God says, I choose you as a people to be a representation and a blessing to other people. And I walk us through this because before we can talk about how to actually love our enemy, I think we have to justify in our minds why. Why would he even walk, walk down that path? Because I can make a choice. I can come up with just some action and be like, okay, I'll do something nice to this person. But this is actually a change in how we view people, how we view ourselves, and how we view God. And it's this journey that Jesus took in his teaching here that helps us to learn not just an easy command, because it's not easy to say love your enemies, but there's a reason we do this. There's a why. The key idea I want you to grab here is this is the same idea that he's been laying out that we're going to lay out for us today is don't let my love for you, Jesus's love for you, God's love for you, separate you from others. Don't let God's love separate us from others. Instead, let it drive you to love others, even those that are maybe the most different from you or the most difficult to love, which are your enemies. Too often we think, oh, God loves me, and we start separating from other people. Like, I, I'm, you know, I can't be around somebody who's bad or evil or this or that. And we start separating ourselves. We start, again, we start gathering an army like we sang about, not to set people free, but to go and de- defeat people. To act like we've got it right and you got it wrong and let me show you. And that's not what this is about. So let's jump into this. How do we do this? And I think the first question is to figure out who are our enemies, right? Who are the enemies? Uh, and maybe you're like, I don't, I don't need help figuring that out. I got that one down. I, I know who, who my enemies are. But uh, th- this is where I want us to start because I think the key idea, our enemies come from a source and it's come when there's conflict in our life, right? And we just did a whole series on conflict. If, you, if you're having trouble with conflict in your life, there's, I think, eight weeks we did on conflict. You can go and listen to that online. But, but I'll actually, when we actually create enemies is when conflict arises, when we have differences, when someone thinks one way and we think another, when we end up at odds with someone else over our possessions, our principles, our priorities, the easiest way not to have enemies is to avoid conflict, but avoiding conflict is impossible. So avoiding enemies is impossible. We all, we all have fights, right? I remember growing up with my brother. I loved dearly, but we used to fight all the time about stupid stuff. We tell you how old I am. We grew up with an Atari 2600. Right? I mean, this was one joystick, one button, and we would play a game called Combat because it was the only game Jay wanted to play that he could beat me in. 
I would beat him in the other ones, but he would be like, we're playing combat today because I'm beating you. And undoubtedly, this combat Atari game would turn into physical combat as we got angry at each other. I remember in, in sixth grade, I got in a fight with a friend of mine at school. He's a friend. His name's Tommy McGookin. Right? It doesn't sound like a guy you want to get in a fight with. But I did. We, we had a locker next to each other, like a bottom locker. And I guess we were both having a bad day. He opened a locker and he hit me and I fell over. And I was like, all right, I just pushed him back. And before we know it, we're in the rolling around having a fight in the sixth grade in middle school. Like just crazy, stupid stuff. We all of a sudden find ourselves in the midst of fights and conflict. You can't avoid it. It's going to happen. So if we can't avoid it, it's best to be able to understand and identify the source of conflict to begin with. Conflict can come from a conflict of culture, right? There's a difference in how we think. When you elevate something that I don't like or you devalue something that I do love, then there's going to be conflict. We see this all the time in politics, right? Or there can be a conflict of interest. This is different in what we want, what we want to see succeed. When we have either competing for the same resources or, the, or we want something, somebody to win and somebody to lose, right? This is, you see this in sports all the time, right? You know, you got, I'm for this team, I'm for this team. Or you maybe have a conflict of pride. This is a difference in how we act or what we truly value inside. And when you feel like when you disagree with that, you're attacking me personally, something you're bringing hurt into me. And this often brings, you know, separation or even wars into our culture. Right? So conflict of culture, interest, our pride are ways that these come in, where enemies are developed. And I want you to also realize that they are both just and unjust causes to each of these types of conflict that create enemies. Maybe somebody who truly hurt you, intentionally tried to make you look bad in front of other people, and you have a just reason to be angry. Or maybe you were just oversensitive about an issue and you got offended easily because someone disagreed with you and there's really, it's an unjust reason that you've created conflict in this moment. The problem is we usually end up arguing about whether, it's, whether or not the conflict is just or unjust when the truth is it really doesn't matter. It's still conflict. It's still causing us to have enemies. And Jesus said to love your enemies no matter whether the conflict is just or unjust. And so the reality is this, when we first read this verse, we can get caught up in the idea that, you know, if we're to love our enemies, maybe the best thing to do is to work on not having enemies. So let's get rid of our enemies in a good way, not a bad way, right? Let's just not have enemies. But this isn't actually what the passage of Jesus says, or Jesus says here. You think about Jesus, Jesus had plenty of enemies throughout his life, so much so that they killed him. And he doesn't say to not have enemies. He says to love them. And so I want us to understand a few things about this idea this morning. The enemies are real. They're real. It doesn't say act like they're not there. That's foolish. Enemies are, are also regularly present in our life. It doesn't say we, we won't have them or we can avoid them. And our conflict won't come. And, you know, we said Jesus had them. They are present in our life. And they can often feel very personal as well. Enemies aren't just you know, uh, a country we don't like, or a feeling we have towards somebody in the distance. It can be very personal, and it can, we can feel it at the most deep level of who we are. Enemies are part of our life. Key idea is this. Enemies are part of our life, and Jesus is giving us the best method of dealing with these enemies for our own good and for God's glory. 
And he gives us two steps to take about how to respond to our enemies. And the first response is this. He says, love your enemies. So we've finally gotten to the point of like, how do we do this? How do we love? Love is a very deep concept. And when you now boil it down, it actually centers around two key ideas. I'm not going to talk about the whole definition of love, but love ultimately is an internal perspective and an external expression. Right? So what that means is this. Love isn't something I just have in my heart and it never impacts what I do. Love is also not just doing something nice for somebody and still hating them in your heart. I wish that was the case. I wish I could just say, all right, for me to love my enemy means I just don't have to say anything bad about them. But I don't have to feel good about them. It is both an internal perspective shift and an external expression. Love is this magical union of both a proper internal perspective and of a genuine desire for good for other, pers- other people and an external expression to work to see that good becomes reality in their lives. So how do we do this? How do we show love to our enemies? One is you have to remember, go back to the very basics, we are all God's creation. Right? Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man and woman in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. We are all image bearers of God's creation, uh, of God. Now, here's where that's easy to forget, right? When somebody causes you pain in your life, because that's the opposite of how many of us view God. God is not the author of pain. God's the author of love and grace and mercy. And so when somebody comes and brings pain into our life, that usually the first thing we forget is that this person over here was also created in the image of God, just like I was. And what often, I'm not trying to excuse when people do things to you, but there's a saying I heard long ago, and I believe it's very true, and you find it in sociology and psychology, is that hurt people hurt people, right? When people experience pain, their thing they want to do is spread that pain often. And it's not healthy, right? And this is why I think Jesus is teaching to put a stop to this. But when we have to look at somebody, I've tried in my life, when somebody hurts me, and the way I remember that they are image bearers of God is to also remember they've experienced pain in their life. And it helps me then maybe at least develop a heart of compassion to remember that this person was created by God and maybe they're expressing pain to me because of the pain they once felt. And that's hard to do, but it's a choice that we have to make to live like this, right? To remember that every person, no matter how much conflict and difference we have with them, they are all image bearers of God, uniquely formed by him. And maybe they've experienced pain and hurt and heartache that we can never understand. Or we've not taken time to understand. And the pain and heartache they're bringing into our life is a reflection of that. But step two Uh, of how do we love is to remember that the love Christ demonstrated for me and for you, right? This was the passage Kit read earlier out of Romans 5, uh, where it reminds us that we were once enemies of God, yet he reconciled himself, ourselves to him. He brought us back into relationship with him. He did not find the differences too large of a gap to close. Out of his love and grace and mercy, he came and brought us from being enemies of his to being friends and sons and daughters of God. It's a beautiful picture. It's what our faith is built off of, 
right? This fact that we were, in, we're enemies at odds with God. We willingly chose a rebellious path, and yet he then came and reconciled and brought peace to us. We didn't make peace with God. God made peace with us. What a beautiful picture, right? And it's one that we should remember when we see somebody on the opposite side of this chasm of conflict that is our enemy. We keep waiting for them to build the ladder of peace to come to us. And maybe if they make their way over here, then we can have a conversation and talk about what we should do. Instead, reminding ourselves that God was the one who came and came across that chasm to us is a challenge for us to make that same step, to make the first step. That One of the best ways you can love your enemy is to be willing to take the first step toward healing instead of expecting them to. Third way that we do this is to remember that you have been blessed and forgiven and to be a blessing to others. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about uh, this when it says that we are to be agents of reconciliation. As we've been reconciled, we now get to bring reconciliation into the world. God didn't show his grace and mercy to us because we deserved it, right? That, That means it's not grace and mercy if it's deserved. In the midst of this conflict that we had with God, you know, he came and we experienced this beautiful blessing of reconciliation, which then allows us, gives us the power and the energy to make that step of reconciliation to other people. And I want you to hear this type of love cannot be conditional on what others do. It's a key idea. This type of love cannot be conditional on what others do. Instead, it has to be conditional on the character of God and what he did for us. Because if I stand in this gap of conflict, this chasm of conflict with somebody, and I'm waiting for either my own energy to come up with the ability to reconcile with this person or this person to take a step of reconciliation, it's probably never going to happen. But when I can look to the character of God and what he already demonstrated and did in my life, then it allows me to have the energy and effort to move forward to bring reconciliation into our life. Remember, this is an internal perspective shift and an external expression. It's a simple formula. It's not difficult. I want you to hear this. Loving your enemies is not difficult. It can be tiresome. It can be weird. It, it can be a challenge, but the formula is not that difficult. I mean, when we first moved to New York, we ordered all of our furniture off of Ikea. I was expect I'd never done Ikea before, so I was expecting everything to show up put together. If you've done Ikea, you realize that's not the case. Like, they dumped all this stuff in our apartment, and I was like, where's the couch? And like, like you see those three boxes over there? And I was like, oh, I got to put it together. And uh, I was like, okay. And so I remember when I opened the box, I was like, this is going to be complicated and crazy. But if, if you've done this before, Ikea has one tool, and their instruction manual has no words. It's just pictures. And I was like, this is, there's no way this is going to happen. But the truth is, it was that simple. Like, it was tiresome. It took me a long time. It was a lot of energy, but it was not difficult to all of a sudden create a couch using one tool and pictures. And the same is true of how we love our enemies. There's a tool of God's grace and mercy that we have been given. And we've given a, been a beautiful picture of God showing us how to do it in our own lives. It's not difficult. It may be exhausting at times, but we have the formula of how to love our enemies. But there's a second response, and it says this. It says to pray for those 
who persecute you. Now, if it wasn't enough that Jesus told us to love our enemies, now he tells us to pray for those who persecute us. How, how do I pray for my enemies? How do I pray for the conflict in my life? You know, we're, we're getting ready to do a whole series on prayers I mentioned earlier, and we're going to talk about this. But I want us to grab hold of some scriptural understanding of these challenging concepts of how we pray for those who persecute us. Because when we think about praying for someone, we tend to think about praying for those that are sick or in need, right? Somebody who needs help. We don't think about praying for those that we are in conflict with and are actively persecuting us. Aren't we the ones who need prayer in that moment? Yes. And the beautiful thing is we already have Christ interceding for us on our behalf and praying for us. That there also, this isn't praying. When sometimes when we think about praying for those who persecute us, we think about praying for me to win and them to lose, right? I've been a number of times, I've been a chaplain for a football team, and there's never a time that we've been, you know, as the chaplain, I come in and we pray before the game. Do you know what they want me to pray every time? Is for them to win and the other team to lose. And you know what? The other team probably has a chaplain in there. Do you know what he's praying? He's praying for them to win and us to lose. So ultimately, it just comes down to who prayer is better, right? You know, no, it's, this is not what this is praying for. Like when we pray for those who persecute us, God, teach them a lesson. God, bring the hammer of justice into their life. Bring the sledgehammer of your wrath. You know, this is not the kind of prayers he's talking about. He's saying pray for those who persecute you. And so how, how do we do this? How do we do this? This is a, what he's talking about here is a prayer for healing. It's not a prayer for justice or anger or retribution or win or loss. It's a prayer for healing. Healing in our lives, their lives, in this relationship. It doesn't mean that we're going to come and be healed and be best friends. It just means that there's going to be healing where we can move toward peace. And so how do we do this? I think there's three ways that we pray here. One, pray for truth to be elevated above people. It's not that I win and they lose. It's that truth is elevated. The most, uh, imp- the most practical thing that we can pray for and that people can experience in the midst of conflict is truth. I can be blinded by my own passions, my own desires, and others can be as well. And instead of praying for your way to be elevated or your side to win, instead to pray that truth be known and elevated above all else. But what else can you pray for? Pray for blessings to be experienced across the board. Because honestly, when good things come into both people's lives, it's easier to step toward healing. Versus the I said so, Mo, I told you so. Look at me, I got you, I win, you lose. Is not does not bring peace into our lives. Instead, the goal should be on the other side of conflict is that every party be more blessed than they were to begin with. Each would understand truth at a deeper level. Each would understand grace and mercy and love and forgiveness at a different level. But third, pray for reconciliation to be expressed. Is that we have the ability to say, look, I am willing to forgive. I'm willing to give forgiveness. I'm willing to speak that out there so that then reconciliation can be expressed and hopefully experienced. Again, you're probably enemies. You've gotten to this point for a reason. It's not just a a conflict among a a friend that can be easily resolved about who cleans the dishes or who does this. It's it's something that has driven you to where you you want evil for each other. And in the midst of this now, what what you're hoping and what you're praying for is that you both would at least turn back toward an idea that you could live at peace with one another, where you're not at war with each other. 
Why respond this way? This is the last question that I would ask if I was listening to Jesus. Jesus, why do you want me to do this? Maybe I can understand the concept. Maybe I can see the theory behind this. But why can't you just do this? Why do I have to love my enemies? I want you to hear this. The truth is Jesus is not giving us this command for the benefit of your enemies. He is giving you this for your own benefit. When I allow things like pride, anger, hate, and intolerance to invade my life, it will destroy me. While will loving your enemies have an impact on them? Maybe so. I pray so, but sometimes not. Will your love for your enemies have an impact on you? Absolutely. Every time. And pride, anger, hate, and intolerance are walls of a prison cell you create for yourself to limit the freedom that you can experience through your relationship with Christ. And you are letting pride, anger, hate, and intolerance imprison you, then you can break free from that with love, prayer, and a pursuit of peace. But when we break out and when we break out of that cell, we can start loving our enemies. It will help us start to have a proper motive of decision making. It'll help us embrace and exercise self-control. It will help us experience personal peace and have a deeper understanding of who God is and the healing power of reconciliation that comes through him. So my question of the day as we close is this. What enemy do you need to love today in order to set yourself free? What hatred, intolerance, anger, and pride toward an enemy are you allowing to imprison you in such a way that you are not experiencing the freedom that Jesus wants for you in your life? What enemy do you need to love today in order to set yourself free? Break through the wall of pride. You don't know what they did to me, you might say. I don't. I don't. It's okay. That's a wall we created. You might have anger. Somebody has to pay for this. It's not your job to take the payment. Hate. They don't deserve love or prayer. Neither do we. Our intolerance. We are just too different. Well, you're just as different from them as they are from you. Don't keep yourself in a prison by not being willing to step out and love your enemy. Will you bow your head and pray, pray with me? God, in the midst of this teaching on love, the idea of loving you and loving our neighbors seems like child's play, thinking about loving our enemies. But God, the, the truth is, what you're teaching us this morning is not advanced Christianity. It's not... PhD level Christianity it's it's simple there's a simple formula of remembering that we are loved and that your grace has been poured out on us even when we were at odds with you and the peace that we have experienced is the peace that we want to share with others so God it's our simple prayer this morning that you would change our hearts to become people that want peace with our enemies And that peace comes through a willingness to love and pray for them. So God, right now, bring to our minds those in our life that maybe we're just, because of pride or anger or hate or intolerance, have been unwilling to love or pray for. And allow us to be willing to take a small step to just maybe pray for them today. Pray for the way that we view them. 
pray that peace would somehow come into this moment and that you would, we would invite you to show us how to show love to them. God, let us live in the depth and breadth of your love and grace for us, so much so that we know we have the ability and the privilege to love our enemies.